obviously my prayers are not efficacious. I prayed for 10 people. <laughs> uh, it's a bit intimidating to stand before you. And let me tell you why. Our clergy, many of you know our clergy, Father Daniel, Father Bill, Deacon Tex, Deacon Joanne, all of our clergy are excellent speakers. And their sermons are well prepared, they are well executed, they are well planned, and they are also superb rhetoricians. But most importantly for St. Thomas, their sermons are the words inspired by the Holy Spirit given to them so that we could become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a tough act to follow, folks. <laughs> Second reason I think I'm a tad bit intimidated in standing up here is because when I look at the congregation, it's like preaching to an encyclopedia. <laughs> there are experts in every area. We have PhDs in English and science and math. We have financial experts. We have insurance people. And you go, oh, I'm liable to blow it. Well, you are, you are intimidating. But this learned body before me we're joined for one purpose, main purpose, and that's to hear about Clive Staple Lewis, born November the 29th, 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. He was Irish, died on November the 22nd, 1963, the same day as John F. Kennedy and Audulus Huxley, which is interesting. Now. Clive Staples. Why the name Clive? Right? Think back to your, uh, um, your days in first, second, third, fifth, sixth grade, whatever. Did you have a lot of people named John or Bobby or Karen or Susan? Yes. Well, in the 1890s, the name Clive was like Bobby in America. You go, why? <laughs> would be a really good question. Clive is a last name. David Clive was a Victorian war hero. He was the man who conquered the French, uh, who the, the French in, and I'm, it's slipping my mind, oh, in India, where it allowed Britain to claim India and to occupy it. So, if you were born in the 1890s, and you were a boy, you had a really good chance to be named Clive. So that explains the bizarre name. Staples, his middle name. That's another interesting thing. Staples is part of his mother's family. She was at Flora, uh, Flora Lewis was a Hamilton. The Hamiltons have a long tradition of being Anglican and Church of England priests. Her great-grandfather was a bishop in the Church of England. He married a woman by the name of Elizabeth Staples. Now, Elizabeth Staples' father was a member of British Parliament. If you were Irish at this point, it's very important you marry up. It's, very, it's sort of like being in the Jane Austen novel. <laughs> when you start thinking about this. Um, and, and Lewis's father, Albert, was a lawyer. And he, he actually wanted his family to go up the social ladder. 
So thus, it's Clive Staples. Okay. Uh, as a kid, Lewis hated his name. <laughs> he would. When he was four or five, he announced to his family, you may no longer call me Clive, because they called him Clive, you are to call me Jaxies. And they go, okay, fine. <laughs> then he shortened it to Jax. And finally, he shortened it to Jack. You knew you were a personal friend of C.S. Lewis when he looked at you and said, call me Jack. That's how you knew. All right? But for most of his life, he signed his name C.S. Lewis. Uh, most people called him, if they know him, Jack. Right before he went to Oxford for his degree, he was taught by one of the greatest rationalist atheists of the 19th century, William T. Kirkpatrick, from whom he learned logic, which you can see exhibited in one of his most famous works, Mere Christianity. All right? Um, Kirkpatrick insisted on calling him Clive, whatever the case may be. Uh, but so much for the side notes. We do not come these next five weeks to worship at the feet of C.S. Lewis. We do not come metaphorically or literally to go to Wheaton College to the Wade Center that has most of Lewis's manuscripts to walk on our knees and to genuflect and worship at Lewis's feet. That would be abhorrent. On the other hand, in the next five weeks, we don't come to denigrate this guy. Yeah, there's some things we're going to have to talk about. His concept of the substitutionary death of Christ. His concept of purgatory. His praying for the dead and to the saints. His view of women. And, of course, what do you do with that character, Emmeth, in the last battle, who never knew the name of Aslan, and yet Aslan says, come in to eternal joy. You go, uh, we will be talking about that. When I lecture on Lewis, when there's a question and answer period, often I'll see the hands go up and I, 95%, I know the first question. <laughs> what about him? Okay, well, we will be talking about him. Uh, but we're going to do what I think Lewis would want us to do in his about 40 works. It's hard to number how many books Lewis wrote. They come out under different names, so it's very hard to tell. It's, it's about 40. Lewis, for Lewis, Jesus Christ is exactly who Jesus Christ said he is, the Son of God. Exactly. In Mere Christianity, page 54, Lewis tells us the chief tenant the core philosophical belief, the key belief of Christianity, and let me read it. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. I love the word somehow. Yes, Christ died for our sins. Yes, his blood, his blood is efficacious. Yes, I can trust what he says. But how did all this happen? What do you mean his blood is efficacious? How does it work? Oh, we have theories, theologian friends. You have lots of theories. And here's Lewis. He would say, you have lots of theories. The atonement. Can't you hear Father Daniel? The atonement. And all these other things. And Lewis would say, 
fine, have your theories. But would you stop arguing about them? They are theories. They are not absolute truths. You can't prove it. They are theories. Lewis says the central idea, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. These are the words Lewis would have us to believe. So I'm going to ask you something. I'm going to ask you a favor. That you pray, and I'm going to be praying for all of you, that our Heavenly Father would take us on a journey this next five weeks. A new adventure. A different adventure. An unexpected adventure. Maybe even a shocking or harsh and disturbing adventure concerning our understanding of what it means to be a follower of this Jesus Christ. Because if you're sitting there, and I'm pretending I'm Lewis right now, there's a great far-fetched pretend. You're sitting there and you have, you have your Christianity all figured out. Lewis would look at you and go, huh? No, you don't. We have these finite brains and we're trying to wrap them around this infinite God and we know the way. I used to tell my students in honors college that at one point I read there were 36,000 different Protestant denominations. Did you hear, did you hear the number? 36,000. You know what that means? You are correct about your point of view, and the 35,999 are wrong. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so says Lewis. Stop arguing about their... Oh, he was somewhat of a theologian. He never claimed to be a theologian. But stop arguing about theories. So I'm going to pray that we, all of us, have a reassessment of what it means to be a follower of Christ or a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that through the power of the Spirit, when we are done, none of us are the same. I can't do that, and you can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit working through us can do it, and I need your prayers for that to happen. Lewis says, once you accept Christ for who he says he is, you become a little Christ. That's both good to hear and frightening to hear. Listen to his words in From Mere Christianity. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that if we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. But if we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be, shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Spirit will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has, what I call, this is Lewis' words, the good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. It's not about, says Lewis, following our silly little rules we make up, our do's or our don'ts. It's about following a person, a person who wants to know you intimately, a person who wants to have a conversation with you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every morning. And he wants to change us. And I go, thank you, Jesus, I'm not going to be the same today as I am tomorrow. And vice versa. I, I want to be more like him, but we'll get to that later. So I share that prayer request that during the next five weeks, you agree 
Lord, help us all who hear from the words of Lewis and your scripture to be more like Christ, to be little Christ. In searching for a way to begin what I was going to do here for in the next five weeks, my heart and my mind were searching for a song. I wanted a song for us to sing, and I wanted a song that embodies everything that Lewis would say amen to. I wanted Lewis to be here. I wanted him to be here cheering us on, saying amen after every line. And a couple of Sundays ago, at St. Thomas, where Chris Segan are wonderful. If you've not heard Chris Segan play or sing, uh, you need to come to St. Thomas just for that. The sermons are good. <laughs> <laughs> but the music is phenomenal. I'm kidding. Uh, no, it, it, it really is. Chris led us in a song entitled, listen to the title, Not Yet I, But Through Christ in Me. Yet not I, but in Christ through me. And so I asked Sophie, who was going to play the guitar for us, and I asked Ian and Anna if they would lead us in singing, and Brian and his helper are going to pass out words for you. And I wanted you to see and have a copy of the words, because I, I honestly believe Lewis would not object to anything. He objected to a lot. Okay. When he went to church, he didn't listen to the preachers. He thought they were boring and stupid. I mean, he was formulating a lot of his literature. <laughs> yes, he was Anglican, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. This song embodies this. Again, from mere Christianity. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death washed our sins, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what is to believe. It's all about Christ. So I want you to join me in this song, and we'll be led by one of the sweetest married young couples I have ever met. In some ways, I feel we could leave, and we will have been blessed by that, by that song. Okay, you are here. Thank you. Most of you at least have heard of Lewis. Many of you have read a lot of him. Many of you like him. Why? I will, can I have some answers? <laughs> Why do you like Lewis? I'm not expecting profundity. You won't do that for me. But <laughs> why? Why do you like Lewis? He makes sense. He makes sense. Okay. He Good. challenges. He challenges. Entertaining. He entertains. He does that. I really, really enjoyed my dear Christianity. Why? It well, it was, I've read it twice, and the first time it was thought-provoking, mm -hmm. and the second time it was comforting. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Very good. That's you good see the very rational, logical Lewis saying, the center of truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is on him. Once you embody that, here's what happens, Lewis says. All of those fragments of your life find a core to wrap themselves around. That's what Christianity does. In this age where we have nothingness in the world, what is it? Yes, we use the word peace, but what Lewis is saying, thanks to our friend, is, is that Lewis takes all the various chords of our life and he says, I'm going to give them a center. 
And that's Christ. And everything is going to go through that center and you will be comforted. Anybody else on this side of the room? Why do you like Lewis? I like his imagination. Oh, yes, we have to talk about that. We Anglicans like to talk about Lewis's sanctified imagination. Right? We just can't go with imagination. Okay? Anybody else? Lewis? Sense of wonder. Sense of wonder and oh, hold on there. Sense of wonder and awe. Yes. Religious allegory. Allegory. Yes, we have talked about that. Lewis didn't like that term. <laughs> but you do, and I do, and I think Lewis is crazy about that. We all know Aslan is Christ. The last letter he wrote in his life before he killed over and went to glory, he was with T when that happened, um, was by to a boy named Peter. Peter writes him a letter. We don't have Peter's letter, but we have his response. And he says to Peter, thank you for reading the Narnia Chronicles, and thank you for believing that Aslan is Christ. A lot of people don't get that. <laughs> and one more, I thought, yes. His ideas allow us to discuss our faith with non-believers. Yes, yes, he does. You know, Lewis, um, mere Christianity has led thousands upon thousands of people. People will read Narnia Chronicle, they don't know why they're excited. They don't know why they have joy. They don't know the word Zenzot that Lewis would use. But they're excited. And, and it allows us to think, C.S. Lewis, who's he? I asked my classes who he was. I'm teaching at Athens Tech now, and three or four people had heard his name, <laughs> which I think was kind of good. Okay. Uh, we, we Anglicans like Lewis, if you have your prayer books, come Book of Common Prayer, and especially if it's on the web, on November the 22nd, which is Lewis's death day, we have the colic. The colic is simply a nice little word that Archbishop Cramer used in the, in the 1500s. Uh, it's a prayer that directs our worship. Is that okay? Okay, good. All right. I always check the theologians. I'm in literature. Here's the colic. And it's because, O oh God of searing truth and surpassing beauty, we give thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, who sanctified imagination, <laughs> lit fires of faith in young and old alike. Surprise us with your joy and draw us into that new and abundant life which is ours in Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The term sanctified imagination needs to be teased out. Because as soon as we think of the imagination, and I've talked, you know, I'm 70-something now, however I am. When, when I talk about literature, some of them go, oh, literature. The imagination. Believe it or not, as I was growing up, the imagination was poo-poo in, in my Christian circles. It was, it was evil. Like you're, you're studying something false. Today I want to say to these same people, now they're now in glory, and I am who I am because of these people, so I would never say it. <laughs> but look at the New Testament. Could you get more imaginative? How many dead people have you know come back to life? That's quite imaginative. Women, the first missionaries, that's quite imaginative, is it not? All these things in the New Testament, water to wine. I believe a lot of us who are evangelicals in the background would rather Jesus had turned the wine into water. <laughs> would have made us more comfortable. <laughs> However, he did not. 
So we'll talk about this, this imagination. Lewis himself was a scholar. I like the British method of scholarship because, checking on time so I don't bore you too much, this is the book he wrote that took him 10 years to write. It's English literature in the 16th century. The Brits allow you to spend, at least during Lewis's era, a long time writing a book. You don't have to publish. Those of you in academia know, where's your book the last two years? You're not going to be promoted. You're going to be an assistant professor for life. <laughs> not with Lewis. Ten years to write this book. Book on 16th century literature. 16th century literature was big on meter and form and sonnets and logic, all right, and wit and beauty and seeking after truth. This is what Lewis knew. And he read the rest of the centuries of literature also. He, uh, he tells us in uh, mere, mere Christianity is, is I guess, uh, the, the epitome of, of his logic. He read 18th century literature that put reason on the throne. Matter of fact, 18th century literature puts reason on the throne. If there is a God, he is only transcendent, and he may not even care, but he's up there. Then Lewis read the romantics. <laughs> Keats, Shelley, Byron, Wordsworth, Coleridge. He read them all. And he started to see something. And he went, oh. The romantics said, your God is way too distant. They're going to take a transcendent God and they're going to make him, make him eminent in their poetry. They're going to make God eminent in this poetry and in their, in their fiction and in, 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 in their novels. And so Lewis says, okay, let me rethink what I think truth does. Most of us want truth to be logical. Amen, brothers and sisters, right? We want it to be, and it should be. It better be. But if it isn't more than logical, would you please be an existentialist or a Buddhist or what else? My religion, my faith in God is logical, yes. I want it to embrace the impossible. I want to get up in the morning and say to God, as Lewis did, what can we do that people will laugh? That can't be done. We limit ourselves because we do not believe in the possibilities, says Lewis, of what God wants to do in your life. I'm 70, I'm 60, what am I to do? Ask God. Maybe, maybe he has a plan. You're 20, you, you're clueless. Well, most 20 year olds are clueless. That's okay. <laughs> this is Lewis talking over here. Uh, he started to reevaluate truth. And he says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe God is with us. Maybe we need to add the imagination. Now, let me give you a working definition of the imagination. It's the act of forming new ideas, new images, or new concepts without appealing solely to the senses. Something else is happening. When you read Narnia, you're just not feeling it. Something's happening in your brain, aren't you? When you see them further in and further up, when you see everything going on in Narnia, you go, whoa, I want that. Uh, you're using your imagination. Oh, and if you don't think Christianity is imaginative, I'm going to ask you to do something. Picture in your mind, if you were a good artist, I, I could ask each one of you to paint a picture of God. Right? Or write a paragraph describing God. Well, the 55 of us in the room or whatever, guess what we'd have? 55 different descriptions. 
tell me, tell me Christianity is surely logical. I don't want to surely logical. I want to, I want to wrap my head around a person, says, says C.S. Lewis, that can do more than I could possibly dream. Well, there's some words like that in the New Testament, aren't there? We hear our preachers uh, ending sermons with, with some, some of those words. All right. Uh, so Lewis says the imagination is a huge part of our system. And he declares the intuition, my gut. Christian friends, you've heard God speak to you in your gut, haven't you? Haven't you ever known that something was right and you should do something because God has spoken to you, says Lewis? Christianity is partly intuitive, not solely. And yes, you can take the imagination down the wrong path. You can take logic down the wrong path. Do you ever around a surely logical person? So annoying. <laughs> Seriously. Just see this like, what's wrong with you? Sometimes one plus two should equal four. Um, so Lewis says, okay, intuition plays a part. And he believed the romantics. And the romantics said, Life is individualistic, but you can't stop there. He said, life is individualistic, but you have to do it in community. Here's was his well, one working definition of what it means to be romantic. A fierce drive for the greater fulfillment of the individual psyche and a more dynamic relationship with the group. Don't you love Lewis? <laughs> A fierce drive for a greater fulfillment of the individual psyche in a more dynamic relationship with the group. Let me parse that out to you. He's defining the church. He is defining the church. He's saying to us, you come to Christ, you posit who he is, you believe him, you accept him, you are awakened to the truth, you are saved, you know it intuitively, but we are made to be gregarious creatures. We need community. We need support. We need each other. From the Romantics to Christianity. So in essence, Lewis is a rationalistic romantic. <laughs> believes in the power of, the lo of logic, believes in the power of romanticism, and at the heart of his belief, and at the heart of all these stories you love, is mystery, is Aslan. It's a word that Christians often don't like, ambiguity. We don't understand it. Again, I agree with Lewis. I do not want a faith that I thoroughly understand, and you don't either. You will be disappointed. So says Lewis. Okay. <laughs> and I tend to agree, to agree with him. I go back to Lewis's original statement. The belief that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. That's the key word, somehow. And that the imagination is one avenue to truth. The logic is another avenue for truth. But for Lewis, the imagination, intuition, logic must all be rooted in Scripture. If you're not reading Scripture daily, says Lewis, and I hear all kinds of excuses why we don't, your God is not as imaginative as he could be. I like Easter Sunday. I like the angels sitting there. I don't know why they were sitting on the rock. Were they tired? I don't know. Uh, but I, I like Easter. Uh, it's shocking. It's highly improbable. And, and Lewis says, this is the kind of Christianity we need. All right, we, we need, as a matter of fact, this is what brings us his word 
Sehnsucht. It's a nice German word. And it's, it means that immortal longing that he believed God planted in all of us for the divine. And that if we surrender to that, surrender to the truth of God, make God preeminent in all things, our lives will not be boring. So how do you start this? When Moose became a Christian, we'll talk about this next time. He was an atheist for the large part of his life, about half of his life. When he became a Christian, he trained himself. He said, I will never get... Oh, well, let me ask this before I explain this. When you get up in the morning... This is rhetorical. Don't answer. Okay. <laughs> when you get up in the morning, uh, do you lie in bed thinking about all the things you're going to do during the day? <coughs> a lot of us do. We have our list. And before we put a step out of the bed, we are an anxious mess. <laughs> Aren't we? You know what Lewis did? Lewis said, see this cover on me? I will never take it off until I invite the Holy Spirit and the Lord into my life that day. I get chills telling you that, folks. That makes, you're inviting Christ, says Lewis, into your life before the nuttiness of your life begins. All of our lives are crazy, aren't they? There are some days they're crazier than others. But he says we make ourselves into walking idiots and nervous because we don't invite Christ in at first. We wait till we get into trouble. And Lewis says, would you kindly invite him in? And I love what Lewis did. You may want to do that. Do not pull the cover back until you say, Lord Jesus Christ, this day is yours. You don't have to pray a half-hour prayer. We don't have that time a lot of times lying in bed. Lord, today's the day. What, what impossible things can I do with you? Do you not think the Father, says Lewis, would want to hear that prayer? I think the Father would want to hear that prayer. I, I, temp, I, I, I agree with Lewis on, on, on that one. Now, Lewis says, do you know why most of us don't experience joy? He gives an answer. He says, because we forget. And here's what we forget. We forget 1 John 3, 1. All the great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God and that is who we are. We forget that I am his son, that you are his daughter. And we don't recognize who we are. So the enemy, he says, we'll look at the screw tape letters, has a heyday with us because we have nothing to fight back because we don't recognize our sonship and our daughtership Daily. And that's one of the functions of the church. That's what I love coming to St. Thomas for. We do that every Sunday during coffee hour and after. We embrace each other. The smiles that we see the loving couples. We see the, our great single people. We see our academicians. It's a joyful place. We're taking coffee and we're sharing joy. We're sharing our lives together. That's what it's meant to do, says C.S. Lewis. Happen to agree with him. But we forget. We forget that eternal fact in our daily lives. I want you to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do every time. I want you to imagine something right now, if you would for me. Imagine the person sitting next to you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not hard for some of you to <laughs> I did see Robbie. <laughs> 
that was wonderful. I wish I hadn't done it. <laughs> He's right. Okay. Anyway. Amen. Imagine, and you can tell when someone's about ready to speak to you, right? And you can usually tell. I want you to think for a second. What does Jesus, this is Lewis, what does Jesus want to tell you right now? He's sitting right there. You're looking in his face. What does he want to tell you? I think I know, based upon scripture, I think I know that if Jesus is sitting there, he will look right at Robbie, and it doesn't matter what condition Robbie's in. It doesn't matter if he was a jackass today, <laughs> what, things he, <laughs> what things he did today, what he didn't do today, how loving he was. I'm thoroughly convinced, based upon 1 John 3, 1, he would look at Robbie and he would say, you're my son and I love you. He would look at Hannah and he would say, Hannah, you are my daughter and I love you. Lewis says we get it so wrong who Jesus is. We crazy Protestants want to keep, we sound like the misfit in Flannery O'Connor short story <laughs> who, who keeps a record of all the rights and wrongs. And God wants to look at you and say, but you're my beloved daughter, you're my beloved son. We don't get that. And I think one of the purposes of the church on Sunday is to remind us. Mm -hmm. To remind us that we are God's son. We are God's children. And that's important. Uh, you are my son. But we forget. We forget that we are his child. We forget what God has promised, he says. We forget what he's commanded. And of course, we conveniently forget our sins, don't we? <laughs> Whereas remembering means to call to mind to bring to memory. Forgetting, I learned this from my wife, forgetting comes from the German and it means unget, to lose one's grip. He forgets your sins. They are as far as the east is from the west. He loves us. In essence, we forget and we lose our grip on God's faithfulness. And like the Israelites of old, we forget who we are and we lose our grip over and over and over again. And why do we forget, says Lewis? Or how can, better yet, how can we stop from forgetting? He has an answer. And I love the answer. We tell stories. In the church, we call them testimonies, right? When I was a little kid, I hated testimony time. The old saints got up and said the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> Now, I wish I could hear those saints today. It was because of their stories over and over and over again that I'm standing in front of you. I want to hear your stories, how God has worked in you and through you. We need testimony time. Well, Lewis says, he wrote his own story and surprised by joy, he didn't tell you half of it and left out all the good parts. <laughs> he says he was on a motorcycle and on the, he never drove on the sidecar. Going to the zoo, he wasn't a Christian. When he got to the zoo, he was. That's all he ever tells us. <laughs> when I see him, I'm going to say, why didn't you tell me more? What in the world does that mean? Lewis tells us stories. Now, here's the catch for Lewis and what we'll be talking about in, in the coming weeks. Lewis tells us stories, and stories help us to remember. That's what stories do. And they shape us 
into the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you read the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when you see a broken table, stone table in a park, you're looking around to find Aslan. Once you get to the, uh, to the, uh, the end, the last book of, of the Narnia Chronicles, you hear Aslan, the children say, can we stay in Narnia? And he says, oh, you don't know? And they go, no. Well, you all died in a, in a train wreck. You're here, and you're here to stay. We remember the stories. Remember nothing else. Remember this next sentence from tonight. In the last battle, King Tyrion is fighting. The false Aslan, the jackass, the donkey, is walking around pretending he's Aslan. Tyrion's fighting this battle, and he makes this statement. And this embodies what I'm saying. Tyrion says, I am between the paws of the real Aslan. Let me say that again. He writes, I am between the paws of the real Aslan. Do you realize what the imagination is doing right now? The strength of the most powerful lion in the universe has his paws around you. Don't get close, Satan, because these paws are going to come out. You can't have my child. The paws are with you. All those scripture verses you learn are what Lewis does, he takes the scripture verses and he embodies them in fiction, in the imagination, so you remember them, so we don't forget them. It's like being, uh, where's my one book? One of my favorites, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan has died, okay? Lucy and Susan are there, and I will read part of it. As soon as the wood was silent again, Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bounds. And down they knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it. And they looked at each other and held him in others' hands for mere loneliness and cried again, and then again were silent. And then Lucy said, I can't bear to look at that horrible muzzle. I wondered who could take it off. What did Lewis just do? He embodied the disciples with the body of Christ. He embodied the, a story that we can now put our heads around, wrap around. Oh, what were those disciples doing when they took Jesus off the cross? They weren't celebrating. They were weeping just like this. And then, and then we read... Well, we find out we know he's dead. And then we read this passage a couple pages later. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed. That for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stove table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more than magic. They looked around. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had ever seen it before, shaking his mane for it apparently had grown again, 
stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan cried both of the children. And Lucy said, aren't you dead? <laughs> and Aslan said, not now. <laughs> That's what Lewis does to his fiction. That's why we like it. He's logical. He's comforting. He takes this truth of scripture that we've all read and know so well, most of us in this room, and he puts it in story form, in testimony form, and we remember. We remember. And he does a great job talking about the enemy in Screwtape. A marvelous job talk, talking about the, the enemy. Great job until we have faces, till we learn who we are. And on and on, we, 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 we can go, this is Lewis. So what, so what uh, is flashing of time? My wife tells me I have five minutes. <laughs> One minute. <laughs> Pastor, Dan Pastor Daniel started late. <laughs> Stories awaken truths in us that we have forgotten. They reshape us. And we don't know how that happens. Totally. We don't know how stories reshape us. We have, they give us images that we can cling to. A stone table. A risen Christ. And I love what happens right after Lucy and Susan finally figure out that Aslan is alive. And I don't like what the movie did. They jump on Aslan and they run and they go kill people. Um, <laughs> what they do in the book both of the girls get on his back and they ramp around having great fun what I think Lewis says is wrong with a lot of our Christianity we've taken fun out of it it's like if you don't follow these silly little rules you're not a Christian says who says Lewis Christianity was made to be fun. I would have loved to know Peter and the other apostles. I want to know what they did with Jesus by the seaside sometime. They were sort of praying all the time. They were, they were wrestling. Well, they wrestling. But they really were doing. They were throwing frisbees. They were, making, they were doing all sorts of wonderful things. They were having fun. If Christian, now, Christianity isn't fun all the time. There's, there's that side of it that obviously is serious. But we take them, the fun out of it, says Lewis. These images that uh, we're not liable to forget them. We're not liable to forget them. When you leave tonight, I have some index cards by the water bottles back there. And what I'd like you, if you will, and it is mandatory, you will burn <laughs> if you don't do this. Can you write down the two books you would like me to talk about? I could go in lots of different directions, but I'd love to hear from this group what two books they would like to discuss. Next week, I would like to talk about The Great Divorce, which is one of my all-time favorites. I've taught it about 25 times to college students. Every time I teach it, I find myself a new character in there, and I weep, and I need to have an altar call. All right, I really do. Uh, so write down your top two books, if you will, for me. And we will certainly, if you want to review The Great Divorce, if you like, and then given time, we'll do mere, Parts of Mere Christianity, which is the book that has brought so many people to Christ. I could read passages, and you know that too, as Don, you could tell us. You, you stand here and weep. How the enemy works and how God works. So I leave you with this thought before I pray. 
you are between the paws of the real Aslan. Nothing can change that tonight. Not all of your troubles. Some of you in this room are going through horrible things that none of us know about. Some of you are on the mountaintop. Some of you have things that you won't share with anybody because it's hurting too much. Some of you are annoyed, fill in the blank. And Lewis says to us at this moment, the enemy of your soul does not have you. He is conquered. You are between the paws of the real Aslan. So Father, we give you back tonight. We thank you for Lewis. Thank you for his words. Use Lewis's words in the next couple weeks to make us more into little Christ. May we not forget the image tonight that we are between the paws of the real Aslan. And that nothing can pluck up those paws away. And the enemy is terrified because he sees the strength. And Jesus Christ is the victor. We give him all the praise. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.